0: Hey everyone, this is Deacon Jim, excited to bring you this interview with Alex Vitali. He is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project there, and I am talking with him about his book from 2017, The End of Policing. And now you might be asking yourself, what is a church doing? getting involved with this discussion with a book called The End of Policing. And well, there are two main reasons for it. Number one, we stand with the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, those groups who have historically been victimized by an authoritarian governmental force that historically has roots in furthering oppression. And as time goes by, has been continuously militarized and held without accountability. And number two, we believe that Christ was political. We believe that there is something political in his message of radical love, of transforming systems that continue to uphold the status quo. Now, to be clear, Alex is not saying that there needs to be a complete abolition of police tomorrow. By writing this book, The End of Police, by supporting this message of defund the police, what he means is we need to move away from a societal model in which the police are the end all and be all of public safety, of conflict resolution. We need to divest some funds from those and put them back into the community, into community centers that can help at-risk youth, into mental health counseling, into building up a healthy community that doesn't need to rely on capital punishment, on continuously victimizing a people and upholding a system which profits off of oppression. The police can still be part of our community, but other parts of those community need to be built up as well to support people and equity. That is what this interview is all about. That is what this book is all about, so I hope you will join me in this interview. With Alex Vitali, it was really wonderful and really edifying, and I hope that you get a lot of, out of it, just like I did. Alex Vitali, uh, thank you so much for um, joining me today, uh, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College, but most relevant to uh, this interview, the author of the book the end of policing. Uh, I am in a uh, I have there's a good problem here in which I have so many questions and so uh, such a limited time, uh, but I always kind of like to start at the beginning, um, which I guess is just if you could talk a little about your impetus behind writing the book and if you could touch on also your your methodology on going about it, because you have a lot of links to articles and research, but you mentioned ride alongs as well. So I'm, I'm curious about just that whole process.
1: Sure. Well, it's a a long story. You know, I've been doing this work for 30 years now. Mm -hmm. So I got started actually in a really indirect sort of way doing this work, which is that I was working at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness in the late 80s and early 90s and had studied, you know, housing policy and community development work, not, Mm -hmm. not policing in school. And what shifted gears for me was that it was during that period that we began to see this ramping up of the criminalization of homelessness, something that we're experiencing once again here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so this was happening in the early 90s. Then I moved to New York in 93, right as Giuliani is elected mayor. And I watched the pro- that process playing out. And it really got me to think about the interconnection between policing and a whole set of urban, let's call them social problems. Mm -hmm. And so rather than being like a standalone scholar of policing, I was really an urban scholar thinking about how policing fit into broader questions about the economic directions of the city, the the production of social and economic and racial justice. And I think that, that contributed to a kind of critical eye about policing as just one of many tools that government could use to address its public safety, public order, and justice problems. Mm -hmm. And the more I developed a kind of expertise in policing, including riding around in patrol cars, going to police training, sitting in on meetings, and of course, reading the scholarly literature, memoirs by police officers, getting to know police officers, uh, really all over the world. I've, I've worked in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Europe, etc. So this all made me very skeptical about things like police reform, as we conventionally think of it, mm-hmm. and and really just this idea that police is the only available tool we have for producing public safety.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm also, I was also must be I must admit that I was a little bit curious as reading this. I mean, I know um, if you since you do quote so many academic um, research and so many academic papers, also, if you encounter any pushback academically? Because I know Brooklyn College does have criminology classes. So I'm wondering if there's people who are kind of looking at you through society like, what are you doing with us over here?
1: Okay, well, not so much at <laughs> Brooklyn College. You know, we don't have a criminal justice program. Mm-hmm. Our criminology courses are taught as part of a liberal arts program. Okay. In, in, and I teach in the sociology and African-American studies departments. Hmm. So uh, there is, of course, some, some pushback. But, you know, our students, uh, disproportionately, you know, young people of color from heavily policed neighborhoods, they come in the front door with... A a certain amount of firsthand experience and B a certain kind of skepticism about policing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now that doesn't mean that they uh, you know embrace all of my ideas and and I wouldn't want them to uh, in, in some simplistic sense. But of course I'm a part of much larger international conversations about these questions and of course I get pushback. You know there there's a whole industry of academics who work very closely with police who are heavily professionally invested in police reform, who get large grants and contracts to do this work. And, and my research and writing has been very threatening mm-hmm. to, to their kind of business model and their academic worldview. And it's, I raised some pretty, what I think are some important, really ethical issues uh, that are directly challenged to some of those folks. So there, there has been some, some pushback there, uh, but not actually as much as I imagined. Uh, a lot of those folks have preferred to just kind of uh, ignore me and hope I'll go away. <laughs> and that worked a little bit for the first year or so that the book was out. But now, you know, it's just uh, omnipresent. It's in six languages. It, you know, I'm a part of conversations all over the world with, with major foundations and human rights groups, et cetera. So they, they've increasingly had to kind of come to terms with these arguments.
0: Well, and certainly i'd have to imagine since um you know the black lives matter protests in 2020 and how there's been a lot of a focus on that and that is something i do want to get back to uh, but i first wanted to just talk about um I- i'm glad that you mentioned your international experience and studies there because there is a portion of the book in which you you're talking about the history of policing and how it was formed and you do mention the london police specifically which is uh, famously a police force which does not carry firearms with them um and i'm wondering if you find and what the response might be to people who I, i've seen so many people who push back against criticisms against studies by just kind of saying like well but it's not the same london is not the same as america in their approach or new zealand is not the same in their approach to COVID as america and there's always kind of these excuses of like well but it's just not the same thing and i'm wondering how you respond to that because it seems like the subtext of that argument is um well, no, things can't change here. They are the way that they are. Uh, but there does seem to be—I mean, we're human beings. There has to be some universality to it.
1: Yeah. So it's a complicated question because you know there are meaningful differences, but they're not really the differences that I think people tend to try to point to. I think when we when we look at different forms of policing around the world, what we're really seeing is different expressions of how government functions in general in those places. So that when we see, for instance, uh, police used to suppress opposition parties, police engaged in widespread human rights abuses like torture and kidnapping and extortion, we see that that's occurring in governments that, that practice that stuff broadly, where elections are stolen, where Uh, Top government leaders are raiding the economy for their personal bank accounts, you know. And so uh, I think there's a growing awareness that uh, countries get the policing that they set themselves up for. Mm -hmm. And so there are differences between policing in Nigeria and policing in Belgium. But there are also some, you know, cut acrosses. And I think for me, what's most important here is to think about the ways in which policing is a tool that's used primarily to manage the consequences of regimes of exploitation. So we see the formation of policing in the 19th century and late 18th century in relationship to the primary forms of exploitation in the global economy at that time, which are colonialism, slavery and mass industrialization. Mm -hmm. And so today, what we when we see police being utilized to address something, what we want to ask ourselves is, you know, what forms of exploitation are giving rise to the circumstances that seem that have been pointed out as necessitating a police response? And, you know, I try to make the case that instead of imagining police are the appropriate solution, let's actually address those systems of exploitation more directly Mm -hmm. and call into question the the use of policing by politicians to basically facilitate that ongoing exploitation that they themselves, you know, have orchestrated and benefit from.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the the things I appreciate so much about the book is that it's yes, it talks about the problem with policing, but also talks about it in the context of this is one admittedly a huge problem, uh, but brought about by systems of power that are already in place and how they can how they can perpetrate it. and so, and I remember kind of having conversations with some people, you know, since the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 and this idea of the motto of, of defund the police. In which they were rather critical because they were saying like that's too simplistic a message defund the police is a branding problem because it is a much more complex and nuanced argument, but it also kind of seems based on this book um, that like. No, uh, we're not saying that. Uh, don't defund the police. That that this is basically kind of like yes, this is something that has to be addressed. And so I, I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on the idea of um, defund the police as a model of being too simplistic and and it, just a step into a conversation.
1: Well, I don't I don't think it's a question of being too simplistic, but I do think it is incomplete in an important way. So mm-hmm. you know, defund the police, which was not a term I had ever heard or used, you know, uh, emerged that summer out of uh, struggles and directly in Minneapolis. And one of the things, two of the things that were really important about it is that it's, it signaled a rejection of police reform, body cameras, implicit bias training, community policing. It said, look, we've been sold that bill of goods. It doesn't work. The, Cops in Minneapolis had all those reforms. It didn't make any difference. We're past that. We want to directly interrogate why are you using police against us?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, it was also important because it said this is about money. Mm-hmm. This is about government priorities. This is about budgets and spending. And a lot of the organizing has been about, you know, turning people out to city council budget hearings. Mm-hmm which isn't sexy, it doesn't get in the news, but that is what a lot of this organizing is. Now, the the weakness in it is not that it doesn't sell politically or stuff like that, I'm not really so concerned about that, is that it doesn't capture the positive aspirational elements to what this movement really stands for, which is we want money invested in community-based solutions to community problems. So instead of waging a war on drugs, we want harm reduction, drug treatment, community investment, you know, economic development. Instead of investing more money in school police, we want more counselors, wraparound services, teachers' aids, high quality after-school programs, restorative, you know, so, Defund the police comes across as only the negative mm-hmm. aspects of the demand and doesn't encapsulate, well, what do we want instead that we think is actually better than policing?
0: Yeah. And because I know a lot of a lot of uh comments and criticisms that came out of that, like, okay, so if we get rid of the police, you know, when you're robbed, when you're attacked, who are you actually going to call then? You know, and, and kind of how that attitude kind of spurns or or, or comes out of this this. Prevalent idea that like the the police are kind of essential to our fabric as a society. Like without the police, we cannot survive, which seems a little bit disingenuous, or or just kind of like well, no, what you are saying there is kind of a problem that we that does need to be addressed. That's what we're saying in the first place.
1: There's this continuum along defund the police to okay, well, we need to get the police out of the schools and the mental health business, and maybe stop the war on drugs too well, we're working to a long-term vision of total police abolition. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what is disingenuous is, of course, this idea that what people are asking for is tomorrow there are just no police, and then we figure it out from there. Right. Right. So no one's saying that. Everyone understands that if there were no police tomorrow, there would be you know, very real negative consequences of that. What people are demanding is better public safety interventions than just police. Mm -hmm. And, and here, here's the way I think about it is that when people say, Oh, well, we need to mobilize policing to address this problem. People tend to make three mistakes. The the first is that they grossly overestimate the effectiveness of policing in resolving whatever it is you think they're going to do. I mean, most people don't report household burglaries. Yeah. They've completely given up. Most household burglaries that are reported are not solved. In fact, most are not even investigated in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. They're just filed. The police come after the harm has come. They take a report and that's it. And even when there is an arrest and a conviction, it doesn't really solve the problem. It costs more money to incarcerate burglars than burglars actually steal. (laughs) The the second is we we don't calculate the costs Mm -hmm. of policing. We just assume, oh, well, policing exists and it can be infinitely expanded as needed and it's all good. Well, policing is hugely expensive. It takes up a huge part of municipal budgets. It crowds out other possible things we could be spending money on, but also it enacts a lot of harm. You know, uh, 7% of all homicides in the United States are committed by police officers. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge amount of police violence, especially in non-white and poor communities. It's a major burden on those communities. And in fact, uh, public health researchers can actually measure the the impact of intensive policing on the health and well-being and life expectancy of entire communities. Mm -hmm. It also comes with an ideological cost, which is that when we say a problem can be fixed by policing, what what we're saying is, is that the root of that problem is moral insufficiency, misfit individuals, bad people, evildoers, and that the solution is violence, coercion, control, threats, and in the process, erasing any of the kind of structural forces that we know are central to producing most harmful behavior. Mm-hmm. And then the third mistake we make is that we fail to consider the alternatives. Yeah, We just assume, well, policing is the only possible tool that's available to produce public safety. And so when there's a safety problem, we want more of it. But in fact, for most of the things that you think policing is helping you with, there are much better alternatives. And I'm not talking about, oh, in 20 years we'll transform society. I'm talking about tomorrow we could begin implementing better things than using policing to address the vast majority of what police actually do. And this includes violent crimes, sexual assaults, burglaries, robberies, you know school disruption shootings for all of that stuff we have much better alternatives than just relying on policing.
0: yeah and some of the the anecdotes and stats listed in the book are, are rather eye-opening because it really seems to undercut this idea that policing are um crime prevention as much as it seems like uh it's it's kind of a, a largely a reactive force instead of a proactive force and the the proactivity does, tum- does tend to come at the expense of um, non-white citizens, poor and, and lower class citizens because of um, that's how it's been. And that's the easy, easy approach that kind of grabs the headlines. Uh, well, look, just think about this for a
1: second. If, if we're concerned about the well-being holistically of poor communities of color, mm-hmm. then we should look at, all of the harms that are being visited upon people in those communities. And it turns out that the most severe harms are things like wage theft, predatory lending practices, mm-hmm. illegal evictions, unscrupulous landlords. These things exert much more of a negative influence on the well-being of those com- communities. Discrimination in hiring and wages—you know—discrimination uh, in the provision of transportation services, so that people are, are left isolated from where the jobs are. These are the real harms, and of course, policing doesn't address any of those harms.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and that those those harm uh, industrial pollution poisoning the water supply with lead, but right? this kills many more people and steals many more dollars out of the community than all street crime combined. Mm-hmm. But the politicians tend to say, oh, the problems of these communities are that there are bad people, members of the community, not people, not the bankers and the landlords, but the people who actually live in the community are bad and they need to be punished. And therefore, as a politician, I don't have any actual responsibility for all these other problems because I sent the police. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is exactly the pattern we're seeing from Mayor Adams, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Statistics are are, are something which um, can so easily be wielded in an incorrect manner. I mean, Uh, the news, especially here in New York City, and especially during the the recent mayoral election, there were so many statistics about about crime, and that was really the thing that people talked about. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I guess, just their import or how they may be a, a little bit disingenuous as well, because oftentimes, I think what people don't realize are crime statistics are supplied by the police. And there tends to be a focus on the negative. I mean, in 2020, De Blasio also implemented, you know, kind of mental health teams that would respond to certain emergency calls, and that was lauded at first, but there's really been no mention of that, of that being effective, of how many times that has been implemented. Because, especially in the most recent campaign between Eric Adams, who was a former cop, and Curtis Lewa, who fancies himself a a member of a vigilante justice uh, team, it was all about getting tough on crime instead of rehabilitating it.
1: Or revitalizing communities yeah. in meaningful mm-hmm. ways, which is what we really want,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: So, so look, crime statistics, it is a little complicated, but in a way, it's not the primary issue because there, there is crime, there is harm happening. Mm-hmm. And we certainly did have an uptick in homicides. I mean, it's, it's undeniable, and that's a very reliable statistic. Uh, you know, fluctuations in, in official burglary rates are much less reliable, Uh, But the question is, what do we do with this information? So what we've seen has been this mobilization of this bit of data or that bit of data, which may on the surface be accurate data, Mm -hmm. but it's being mobilized to make certain kinds of arguments. And most of them rely on the unstated assumption that policing equals public safety. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's where the real problem is not debating whether or not there's harm, because there is harm. I mean, we, we enjoyed like this 25, 30 year period of declines in serious crime, which been amazing. Uh, and then we had a, an uptick, but either way, there's still too many homicides. The US is an incredibly violent place. We deserve real strategies for addressing these problems. The problem is, is that policing has not been a very effective strategy for doing that. And it comes with a lot of consequences and we have alternatives. So the media and the politicians, when when they're mobilized policing as the solution, that is a political choice they're making to erase these alternative considerations because largely they're committed to a kind of politics of austerity. Mm -hmm. of telling communities, sorry, there's no money to give you the stuff you really want, to give you real community centers, real community-based mental health services, real jobs for young people. We're not going to give you any of that because that's creeping socialism and it's too expensive and all the rest. All you can have is policing. And so over two, three generations, communities have learned, have been taught that if you have a problem, you had better couch the solution in terms of policing and criminalization, because that's all you're going to get. And then the unfortunate flip side of that is that when people hear, wait a second, you want to take away police to address our problems, but that's the only thing we've been told we can have. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't sound very good to me. And of course, that's one of the limits of a simplistic reading of defund the police that's not Accompanied by a fuller explanation of what we're what we're really asking for.
0: Yeah, and and you you touched upon that idea of this is creeping socialism, which is uh, I have to roll my eyes at at people that say such things. But it, that also does get to to into my next question. This idea of hurdles when it comes to a lack of advocacy or the lack of kind of a, a public push behind it. I mean, in your chapter on criminalizing homelessness. It's full of, of of all sorts of facts and statistics about not just the money that's being wasted on arresting and jailing uh, the homeless population, but also about what other states are doing through other programs to kind of change that. And you'd sort of think, especially in a city where we've gone through, you know, two years of a pandemic and all sorts of things when some programs are certainly getting cut because we have to control the budget, that there should be a pragmatism in the sense of like, well, here's how expensive this is, but look at what we can put this money towards. And so it's a complicated question, I'm sure, but what what are yeah. kind of the factors that are that there's a, a lack behind a push or advocacy for these reforms or programs? Well, let's just look
1: at the homeless situation in the subways for a second. So, mm-hmm. so we just had some data out from, from the city estimating that there were about 300, 350 people kind of actively living in the subway, mm-hmm. which may be a bit of an undercount and doesn't include people who are just homeless at times there, et cetera. But it, the city and state, in this crackdown are going to spend more money on policing than it would cost to permanently house those 300 people,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? They could just give those people permanent supportive housing. Mm -hmm. It's a lot cheaper, right? Because they're going to introduce about that many police officers into the scenario. And that's going to cost 50, 80, 100, $150,000 an officer. So if we just set aside the median amount, let's say $75,000 per homeless person per year over a 30-year career, that's more than enough money to permanently house that person with support services. Mm -hmm. But ideologically, the mayor doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to create an expectation that the city is actually going to house people in need. In fact, he cut the housing budget. At the same time, he increased the police budget. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the politics that we're trying to work against.
0: Yeah. And, and there, there also seems to be a an element of, of sort of not in my backyard from voters. I mean, the housing, uh, the homeless in you know, uh, hotels during the pandemic certainly wasn't a perfect solution by any stretch of the imagination and, and just kind of seemed to address certain things, because as you've talked about numerous times in the book, there's also mental health services that have to be considered and jobs and that sort of thing. But they're, they're also, you know, we, I guess we have to admit that there's kind of this frustrating level, like, yes, we need to do something about that, but somewhere else, please, not, not in my Upper East Side neighborhood or not where, where I'm living, but somewhere else kind of a situation.
1: Yeah, that's a huge problem. I mean, and that is definitely uh, one of the drivers of political resistance to actually doing anything about this is the difficulty in citing these kinds of uh, housing arrangements. I, I will say that, generally speaking, supportive housing—you know, housing that comes with built-in social services that is well-run—has a very minimal impact on surrounding communities. And I think that the, you know, we we have to, yes, figure out a politics of solidarity here that says, look, if we want real security for ourselves and our neighbors and our families and friends, you know, we have an obligation to try to start addressing this problem, not just pushing it down the road. Mm -hmm. Because I can tell you this, you know, expelling people from the subway to make the subway safer is not going to work. On the one hand, what we're already seeing is a pattern of people walking the 10 blocks to the next station and then just going back in. Sure. And the other is you're just moving the problem around. So now, instead of someone being assaulted in the subway, they're going to be assaulted on the street. Mm-hmm. How is that solving the problem? It's right. not.
0: hmm So you are you are not a a, a media professor uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but also as a sociology professor. I'm sure you you are not ignorant to just the role that media plays in public perceptions of things. Um, I'm wondering if you see any kind of role um, that specifically fictional media plays in perpetrating this idea of the value or need for policing in its current form. I mean, I'm, you know, just this past week we had. The Return of Law and Order, which itself is a show that has nine spin-offs or iterations which is to say nothing about Blue Bloods or NCIS or Holly or Hawaii Five O, and, and those are just the contemporary ongoing shows and this is you know and this has been going on for generations so is is that actually a significant influence enough of a force to kind of um, that, that people kind of perceive that there is a value because of what they are seeing every night
1: absolutely absolutely I mean it's terribly important I mean it- Let's set aside official statements by politicians and the news media and just focus on the entertainment media for a second. I mm-hmm. mean, the, this has been a, the, a major producer of a set of understandings that are now taken for granted about policing, that, that police are here to protect and serve, that police aspire to be professional, politically neutral, that they are you know, heroes finding all the bad people, that they're solving problems, et cetera. And mostly this has nothing to do with the actual real life world of policing. Now, the effect of this is somewhat differential Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, if you're living in, if you're a young man of color in a heavily policed community, you have your own direct experience of policing. So you may watch these television shows, but not because, you know, that's not going to convince you of some other reality, Mm -hmm. but for The average, you know, middle class white voter in the suburbs or in a nicer, you know, brownstone neighborhood of Brooklyn, you don't have much direct interaction with the police, maybe a traffic stop or asking for directions or something. Uh, And so what you know about policing is what you see on television, Mm -hmm. which bears no resemblance with reality for the most part. And this is, you know, this is not an accident. On the one hand, there is a certain sense in which, well, policing is inherently dramatic Yeah. in the sense that, you know, they are dealing with conflict in their everyday work, especially, you know, detectives, uh, but even patrol officers. Most most cop shows are about detectives, not patrol officers, something yeah. to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But the other thing here is that these shows are often... Essentially co produced with police departments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're not independent. So there were a whole raft of police shows that emerged in the 1960s as a direct reaction to the rioting and were created to try to restore legitimacy in policing and were co produced with police departments. This was propaganda, or as some people call it, copaganda. <laughs> And, and through the, you know, and ever since then, shows like Cops, mm-hmm. and Live PD are co-produced with police departments. Those shows have a vested interest in not accurately portraying policing. Mm-hmm. Because if they did accurately portray it, then police departments would not work with them, would not cooperate with them, would not allow them to film their officers at work. So, Uh, Yeah, I think this has done more to skew people's perception of policing than any other factor.
0: Yeah. And it's uh, you mentioned cops, which is just something which was recently brought back into my consciousness just with the documentary series I was watching. But that was that was certainly I think for many who might be my age or, or my generation, our first exposure, really. I, I mean, I was a white suburban kid. Um, my exposure to police was really just like, you know, driving by or we had friends whose dads might have been a police officer or something. But cops was the first thing, like every single week we gather around the TV. And it's like, oh, well, phew thank God these folks are out here because look at the actual people that they are bringing to justice. And like, well, are they actually doing, and what, what is a definition of justice that we are seeing? Yeah. There's
1: no justice going on here. (laughs) There's, there's the micromanagement of the lives of, of poor people and living in very difficult circumstances for the most part. And, you know, it is possible to have a kind of critical viewing of cops that, that arrives at some of those, you know, more critical conclusions about what this endeavor is, but the show itself is filled with moralizing that justifies the need for police intervention in these cases. So it's actively producing this myth-making that that police are somehow solving problems when really they're just moving people around.
0: I like that you brought up the idea of myth-making because I, I was Thinking about this as well, as you've been talking, just mentioning that you've talked to former cops, you know, you've, you know, know, former cops have written memoirs. And and this idea of um, the mythology has become so strong that even even something like a a Derek Chauvin case is kind of now held up as like, well, well, that is that is the extreme exception to the rule. And there's often this response of, you know, this is one bad apple. This is not emblematic of an institution or department or whatever. have you experienced or have you talked to people that can kind of talk about this difficulty of separating themselves or just separating this idea of an individual good cop versus a bad institution?
1: So if I understand the question, maybe I'll come at it in a couple of angles. One is that, you know, I go to great lengths not to demonize individual people who become police officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's productive or fair and so and not in a way not truthful because I do know lots of police and have in the US and around the world. And generally speaking, you know, police are young people who see this as a path for helping their communities. They, they, they really think that. For the most part, I mean, mm-hmm. there are places around the world where that's not so true, where it's it's seen as an opportunity for corruption and rent seeking and and these these bribery. What well, we rent seeking is kind of a term of art, but bribery and extortion and stuff. So yeah. that exists in some places, but not really in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Now they may have a certain worldview that's rooted in a kind of authoritarianism, et cetera, but they still think they're mobilizing that authoritarianism to help people mm-hmm. to get the bad guys for the benefit of the good people. But that's not really what policing is. Hmm. You know, if they, they're not, even when they feel like they got the bad guys they're not actually solving any problems. I mean, police have literally put millions of people in prison on low-level drug charges, and they've not helped anyone in the process.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not a single person has been helped by that. You know? So that's a structural problem. And it doesn't require any extra legal violence, mm. brutality, right? The single leading arrest charge in the United States is low-level drug uh, possession. Most of those arrests are totally lawful, conducted professionally, and totally unjust Mm -hmm. and reproducing racial inequality, a major driver of reproducing racial inequality in the United States. And so the motivation, the race, the gender, the training of the officer is all pretty much irrelevant. In a situation like that, sure. And I think part of the problem here is that there's been a tendency to see the problem of policing through the lens of these occasional, horrific, high profile deaths. And then to try to imagine a solution that uh, based in kind of reverse engineering something that would prevent that specific thing from happening again. Mm -hmm, Right. And this is completely misguided way to approach this. That's what generates this. Well, if we gave them some de-escalation training, if we put body cameras on them, if we gave them implicit bias training, that this would fix the problem. First of all, it doesn't. It's not even saving any lives. But even if it did save a few lives, it doesn't do anything about millions of fundamentally unjust, unproductive encounters between police and the public that don't end up on the nightly news. Mm -hmm.
0: One thing that I I was, I'm hoping that you could touch on and and elaborate a little bit because uh, the book touches on it a little bit, but there is this idea that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is just the role of specifically unions. And when it comes to being a huge hurdle to really changing anything, uh, you know, nevertheless, the status quo, but just kind of the day in and day out. And uh, I'm hoping you can speak a little bit about that to, to educate listeners on just what makes police unions sort of unique amongst other workers unions and why they are so instrumental in resisting progress or change.
1: Yeah. And my, my friend, Stuart Schrader at uh, Johns Hopkins is working on a book length treatment of this that many of us are anxiously awaiting for, <laughs> because we need more scholarship and, and strategic thinking about this. I think the first thing to keep in mind is that we shouldn't really think of these organizations as unions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, people have the right to associate, to, to act collectively, but they're not really unions in the way that we normally think about them. For instance, the, the largest of these, like the Fraternal Order of Police, include management. Mm-hmm. Their boss is part of the union. What these are, are trade associations mm-hmm. that are lobbying to keep their power and prerogatives. And therefore, we should not treat them as if they need to be defended like other unions. I, I for one, don't think they should be part of the AFL. Most of them are not.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But those that are, I think, should be expelled. I don't think they should be part of the labor movement because they're the natural enemy of working class people and, and their movements, and they always have been. Mm-hmm. And when push comes to shove, they will throw picketers in jail and beat them up if that's what they're told to do, which mm-hmm. is the history of policing in the United States and internationally. Um, and I think the, the way we need to do this is we need to put pressure on elected officials not to take their endorsements or financial contributions. Mm-hmm. Here in Brooklyn, we've got a lot of elected officials who are Democrats, who claim to represent communities of color and progressive causes, who celebrate their endorsements by police unions. And, and when confronted, they say, well, I support all municipal workers. I want them to you know, get their pensions in there. And this is what we have to uh, call out and reject. They're not like other municipal unions. They're trade associations, whose fundamental job is to empower an institution that is directly undermining the well-being of our communities by redirecting resources, by criminalizing our young people, and by establishing an ideology that says the solution to our community problems is more police violence, mass incarceration, harassment, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And so if you're accepting that, you you can't be our friend anymore. And the good news is a growing number of politicians here in New York and around the country are are coming to that realization. Uh, The entire Democratic Party in California is currently involved in an internal debate whether or not it should be the policy of the California Democratic Party not to accept these endorsements. Uh, and I I was quoted in the San Francisco Chronicle recently urging them to move forward in that direction.
0: (laughs) I don't know, I don't necessarily know how to turn this into a question, but certainly the, from the, from the beginning of, you know, policing in America and all all around the country, I mean, there, there is, there is a history of them um, kind of being created as a way to suppress as a way to oppress um and and tied into specifically um an us against them mentality when it comes to the you know us being a lot of times or you know white eurocentric kind of groups of people and the them being non-whites um and so if i recall correctly your book doesn't actually specifically mention the words white supremacy but in recent years there certainly seems to have been more of of a reveal of that being an insidious kind of influence within um, policing as well. And I don't necessarily know what the question is, but can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the book talks a lot about racism and Mm -hmm. racial injustice and the role of police in producing that Uh, whether or not this particular term white supremacy is in there. I I can't recall offhand, Mm -hmm. but okay. So, As you recall, I said earlier, look, policing has been created and mobilized to address the consequences of systems of exploitation. Mm -hmm. And systems of exploitation in the global economy over the last 400 years have largely involved a process of racialization, colonialism, slavery and even the way industrial workforces are organized involves the mobilization of racialization. And by that, I mean using differences that appear visible on the surface to mark people as somehow different and to create hierarchies of value and to use that to divide people and to facilitate their exploitation. So policing has been a central tool in accomplishing that. I argue the earliest police force that meets the definition of a modern police force was the Charleston City Watch and Guard created in the late 1780s to enforce the laws of slavery in the city of Charleston where slaves worked outside the home of their owners. Mm -hmm. So policing the color line. And this is true of ghetto policing in the North, Jim Crow policing and the war on drugs. And it's been a central feature of colonial policing, whether it's the Texas Rangers used to, to drive out indigenous populations, uh, suppress the rights of, of Latino homeowners, uh, landholders, you know, denying them the right to vote, the right to public accommodation, the right to form unions, et cetera. You know, border policing has been both a tool of labor management and a tool of producing whiteness of accentuating racial difference and creating racial hierarchies. So this has always been a central feature of policing. And then to be told, oh, well, if we just give police like three hours of implicit bias lectures, that this will solve the problems of racial disparities in policing. And and of course, this is just laughable and frankly, insulting. Mm -hmm. It's, It's offensive to be told that this is gonna solve the problem, right? It's offensive to anyone who knows anything about the history of racism in the United States to think that a few hours of lecture of of police officers is gonna make any difference. And of course, the NYPD's own internal research showed that the training had zero impact on the behavior of officers. it was just, it's just ridiculous. It's designed to tell us that they're doing something about the problem without actually having to do anything. Mm-hmm. That's why implicit bias training was created to provide political cover. Uh, and so if we want to do something about racial justice, and we want to reduce the racial impacts of policing, that we have to diminish the power of policing. And we have to demand real resources For communities of color that have been denied equal treatment for their entire history on this continent
0: there's also it it seems like police too are so i don't want to say susceptible but there seems to be i mean you mentioned myth making uh and and mythology and just just that kind of idea of there, there also seems to be something at play uh with police when it comes to tradition or like well my father was a cop and his dad was a cop and my uncle was a cop and just this idea of it is kind of a little bit absurd to kind of think like, well, if this is being handed down and this is kind of a tradition and in a lineage, then how are things going to change just by, are they thinking by proxy, by just, you know, well, you know,
1: well, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than that because, uh, policing is diversifying. Mm-hmm. A majority of recruits now into the NYPD are young people of color who live in the city. Mm but I don't think anyone feels that policing has changed as a result of that. Yeah. So it's not that policing is committed to like this intergenerational white supremacy. I mean, there were times historically when that was the case, because that was one of their central functions was to reproduce racial uh, division and and white supremacy. But, you know, we got a lot of big city police departments that are majority non-white, The leadership is non-white, including the NYPD, but that doesn't mean that the institution through its core functions isn't still reproducing racial inequality Mm -hmm. through the war on drugs, through school policing, through gun interdiction programs and all the rest that define certain communities' problems as those to be addressed by police, while other problems are left unaddressed and allowed to fester or, or, or addressed in more uh, sympathetic ways through drug treatment and diversion programs and all the rest. So, you know, uh, kids who get caught with drugs up in fancy private schools in Westchester, nobody calls the police. Mm -hmm. Their families don't want the police called because they know nothing good will come out of that for their child. Right. But somehow for kids in the city schools, we need the police mobilized constantly for every little infraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, so diversifying police, racial bias training, this is not the real solution. The solution is to quit using police to do these things and to, and to give those young people who want to help their communities options other than policing as a stable, viable middle-class career, right? So where are the jobs coaching football in a community center and mentoring young people, you know, tutoring algebra so that they can get through high school. You know, these are jobs that really help people really build up communities, but those jobs don't exist. And when, even when they do occasionally exist, they pay a fraction of what police get paid.
0: Yeah. Well, I've just got a couple more things for you before I I let you go. Um, the the the, uh first printing of this book was back in in 2017 so there is a lot of mention of uh trump administration uh processes policies and and speculation on what could be done um i'm wondering if there has been or, or are there indicators of any change i know one of the things that that biden ran on was this idea of like yes i support the police but not without accountability and I mean, has there? You know, he's the administration's only been in place for a year so far. But I mean, is there even even steps towards change or 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 no. nothing? No, <laughs> you're no, already shaking the, your head. Not at the
1: federal level. Not at mm-hmm. the federal level. No, Biden has always been a close friend of policing as an institution, and mm-hmm. he's pouring more resources into it. And these. Accountability measures are talked about, but never implemented. And most of them wouldn't make any difference even if they were. So not, there's nothing positive happening at the federal level, except maybe some awareness that there needs to be investments in other kinds of public safety interventions other than policing. So there's a lot of talk about community-based anti-violence investments. And so that that would be great. Mm-hmm. But that needs to be combined with reductions in policing, is my view. Mm-hmm. The, the flip side of that, though, is that policing is primarily a local matter. Yeah, The federal role is actually quite minimal, and the, the battles over public safety are really happening at the local level. Mm-hmm. So here in New York is a whole crew of incoming city council members who campaign very explicitly on a program of we need something better than policing to keep our communities safe. So I think we're going to see a lot of pushback through the budget process as those city council members say, "Well, where where are the supports for our communities to produce public safety? You say you're the mayor for public safety. Why can't we have a community-based anti-violence program? Why can't we have?" Uh, our community center fully staffed why mm-hmm. can't we have drug treatment on demand for our young people why can't we have real community mental health services so we don't have to call the police
0: yeah and I know certainly here in new york we're already kind of seeing some of those discussions or battles um mayor adams wanted to change bail reform albany seems to be pushing back against that or even you know Al- alvin bragg who ran on so like well there's certain things we're not going to prosecute and it's like what do you mean you're not going to prosecute certain things so they're there is already that kind of interplay, uh, you know, being brought to the focus here. Um, and I, my final question, I guess, for you is uh, I, one of the things that I, I love maybe the most about your book is, is when you talk about in these chapters, the reforms and alternatives. So it's just a, it's, it's not just the idea of here are criticisms, but also like here are steps to take or here are concepts. Um, and, and I'm wondering, since especially you mentioned that a lot of this change is going to come or a lot of this focus comes at a, at a local level. What I mean, like even I'm doing this podcast on behalf of a church. What can an organization like this church do or even just an individual member to kind of participate, contribute or to work towards these alternatives and reforms that, that are being proposed and discussed?
1: So there, there are a lot of campaigns underway here in New York City to, to dial back school policing, to decriminalize sex work, to provide community-based mental health services instead of policing to uh, uh, create community-based violence reduction initiatives like Cure Violence, Credible Messenger programs. We have some really great programs doing this work in Brooklyn, but we need more of that. We need more of that. And we need that reflected in budget priorities. So I think there need to be frank conversations in congregations about, well, what are the harms that we're really worried about? Mm-hmm. And there also needs to be a little reality checking about what are, you know, the relative threat of some of these harms, right? Because just because you saw something on television one time doesn't necessarily mean that's really an active threat to your well being. Mm-hmm. But there are real concerns and they need to be addressed. And we need to get them out on the table and then talk holistically. Put everything on the table. What could, what do we really want? to address that. Is is policing really the only tool we want to address our young people involved in violence? No, it turns out when we give communities a chance to put everything on the table, the policing falls pretty far down on the list. People have a lot of really good ideas about what they want for their young people to keep them healthy and safe and be successful in school and school policing is not, and, and community policing is not the answer.